Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Do you believe in miracles? Um, anybody? Some of you, I think, are old enough to know where I'm getting that title. Yeah, where am I getting it? Miracle on Ice. Miracle on Ice, yeah. Um, can such belief be reasonable, folks? Um, Al Michaels, you know, remember 1980, it walked, look at those TVs, so those monitors or whatever, right? Um, uh, when uh, the U.S. Uh, beat uh, the Soviets in, uh, in the semifinals, I, I want to say that for the gold medal, but it was actually in the semifinal round. Uh, and that was his great line uh, at the end of that uh, game. Do you believe in miracles? Uh, and can it be reasonable uh, to believe in them? Um, some of you may recognize that guy, uh, Richard Dawkins, one of the so-called uh, new atheists. Um, he, ha- he doesn't think so. Um, a couple of passages uh, from, from Dawkins here. He says, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, the manifestations of Mary and the saints around the Catholic world, even the Old Testament miracles, all are freely used for religious propaganda, and very effective they are with an audience of unsophisticates and children. So if you happen to believe in miracles, at least... Uh, this guy uh, uh, thinks you're on the level of, of an unsophisticated uh, or, or a child. Um, another quote from Dawkins, any belief in miracles is flat contradictory not just to the facts of science, but to the spirit of science. Now, it's not, it's not just Dawkins uh, and people like Dawkins exactly who say things like this. Um, in the last century, you got prominent theologians saying similar sorts of things. So here's uh, John Macquarie, uh, an Anglican uh, theologian. Uh, the traditional conception of miracle is irreconcilable with our modern understanding of both science and history. And Rudolf Bultmann, a famous passage, um, it is impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. So with theologians like these, you might ask yourself, who needs new atheists? Does anybody know what a wireless is? Yes? Radio. A ra- I mean, yeah, a radio, right? <laughs> so it's, imp- it's impossible. It's impossible to believe uh, in miracles uh, if you use electricity and radios and avail yourselves of, of uh, modern medicine. It's interesting to juxtapose uh, quotations like that about the impossibility of believing in these sorts of things to, to surveys 
Um, here's a survey taken in 2010 by the Pew Research Center saying that 80% of Americans believe in miracles. And I'm guessing the vast, vast majority of them avail themselves of modern uh, medicine and, and electricity. Um, a, a, a bit earlier survey uh, says 74% of doctors believe in miracles, and 55% of them uh, say they have seen uh, treatment results that they consider to be miraculous. Now, it, you know, it's, it's always a little difficult to know what, what, whether they mean by miraculous is the same thing, you know, whether everybody's on the same page and what they mean by miraculous, uh, but nevertheless, um, uh, it, uh, it makes uh, claims like those of, of bull bond that it's just impossible to believe in these sorts of things for modern people. Uh, it, it, it makes you, you wonder. I scratch your head a little bit. Well, what I want to do uh, in this talk is, uh, is talk first a little bit about uh, uh, what a miracle is or what I take it to be. And then I want to spend most of the time um, considering two types of objections to belief in miracles. One type of objection is, is that miracles are just impossible, period. The other sort of objection is not uh, that they're necessarily impossible, but that even if they were possible, you could never be justified in believing that one actually occurred. You could never be reasonable in actually believing in the occurrence of a miracle, even if, if maybe they're possible. Okay? So, what is a miracle? I'm going to turn to St. Thomas here, as we will for, for several things here in, in the talk. What is a miracle? Um, Thomas says, those things which God does outside those causes we know are called miracles. Those things God does outside those causes we know. What are, what are the causes we know? Um, I take it he has in mind you know, natural causes, right? Causes like fire when it brings about heat and water, or water when it uh, dissolves salt would be examples of natural causes, right? Things that God does outside those would be called miracles. Um, or he puts it this way, those things must properly be called miraculous, which are done by divine power apart from the order generally followed in things. The order generally followed in things, the way natural causes ordinarily function, the way they ordinarily operate. When God does things outside that order by, by his power, uh, outside uh, the causes we know about, in other words, natural causes. So I think that that's a, those are good working definitions for miracles for us. You, uh, a modern writer on miracles uh, says something very similar. He just adds some bells and whistles. A miracle may be defined as an unusual and religiously significant event which reveals and furthers God's purposes, is beyond the power of physical nature to produce, and is caused by an agent who transcends physical nature. Well, I think there's some things to, to worth uh, noting when we're talking about miracles and the relationship between the miraculous and the natural and God. And I think a, a first point to note is that all workings of natural causes are also the workings of God. So when fire brings about heat and water, or when water dissolves salt, those are the workings of natural causes, right? 
Um, but because of the workings of natural causes, we ought not conclude, at least St. Thomas wouldn't conclude, that they're not also the workings of God. And the reason for that is God is the source of the being of all natural causes doing what they do when they're doing what they do. Right? Uh, those, so God is the primary cause that is uh, behind all natural causes. And so the workings of natural causes are also the workings of God. A first point, a helpful background uh, point. Another point we, we might uh, note is that events have natural explanations if and only if they are brought about by natural causes. And one thing that seems to follow from that is that, uh, well, before we get to the thing that follows from it, uh, we've, we've seen that miracles, right, the way we're understanding that, the way St. Thomas understands it, miracles are brought about by divine power without natural causes, so miracles don't have natural explanations. If we, if we define it, having a natural explanation as uh, having a natural cause, miracles don't have a natural cause, they're brought about just by divine power, so miracles uh, don't have natural explanations. Now, one thing I think interesting that, that seems to follow from that is that our ability to recognize an event as miraculous depends on our ability to recognize it as something not explicable in terms of natural causes. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a situation where you've wondered whether a particular event is miraculous or not. I've been in that situation myself in a matter that, you know, sort of a kind of big, important matter for my own life. Um, and, and the question that before me was, why, is this thing that happened, right, is it explicable in terms of natural causes? It just didn't seem that it was, right, which gave me reason, among other things, to think that it might be miraculous. But the point is, if we're going to be able to recognize a miracle as a, a miracle, we, we need to recognize it or, or see it or come to believe it as something that isn't explicable in terms of natural causes. Does that make sense? Now, it seems likely um, that we can know what natural causes produce only if the vast majority of events we experience are explicable in terms of natural causes producing regular and predictable outcomes. How do, how do we, at least that is, is in fact how we seem to know what natural causes uh, produce. We know it from experience. We know it from the experience of causes which produce things in regular and predictable ways. Fire produces heat, water dissolves salt, and so on. But I, I think it follows from these last two points that we couldn't recognize miraculous events as miraculous unless miracles were rare. Right? To recognize something as a miracle is to recognize it as something that can't be explained by natural causes. But to recognize what natural causes produce in the first place requires that the things of nature operate in regular and predictable ways. So if we were ever to have the sort of the background knowledge of nature needed 
to recognize something as inexplicable by nature, as something explicable only in terms of divine power, then it would need to be the case that miracles happen relatively infrequently, that they're pretty rare, right? Um, uh, we might add to this, if God wanted us to be in a position to recognize a miracle or miracles sometimes, he would need to create the sort of world in which miracles happen relatively infrequently, in which they were uh, rare. Okay, so let's, let's consider, with that background about miracles, let's consider some uh, objections uh, to uh, belief in, in miracles. And the first sort of objection I want to think about is uh, the objection that miracles are just impossible. Why is it miracles impossible? Here are three reasons uh, one might think that impossible. One is uh, if, if God doesn't exist. Now, why would miracles be impossible if God doesn't exist? Well, if we're defining miracles as something uh, that happens through divine power and there's no God, okay, there, there are no miracles, right? Um, we won't uh, hash out of this talk, you know, the, the case for or against the existence of God. Uh, we'll just uh, uh, assume, for the, I think the case for, for is, is better than the case against, but we'll just assume for the sake of argument that God exists so that we can have a meaningful discussion about the rest of it. Deal? Okay. All right. Um, we're going to focus in, instead on these two other reasons uh, we might think that God, uh, that miracles are impossible. One, that God couldn't perform miracles. And the other, that he wouldn't perform them. Might, might say even if he could. Well, I think God couldn't perform miracles. I'm not sure this is exactly what this, uh, uh, this is a, a, another theologian actually, Arthur Peacock. I'm not sure this is exactly what he's saying in this text, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a, a kind of objection out of it. But here, here's what he says. He says, our current perception of the world as a closed nexus of events renders the idea of God intervening in the world to rupture its God-given regularities incoherent. Here's what he might mean, and if he doesn't mean it, I, I've heard people express this, this sort of idea. It's almost as if, if God is going to create a, a world in which there are natural causes that operate in regular and predictable ways. He's, he's, it involves his creating something to which is, which is somehow impervious to his intervention. He creates something that he can't uh, he can't do anything uh, within, right? Uh, uh, it's, it's almost, I don't know, the story, can God create a, a boulder that's too heavy for him to lift, right? I don't want to talk about that particular example, but the idea is, you know, in this case, the thought is that God, if he's going to create this world of, of a certain sort, he can't intervene in it miraculously, right? And, and therefore, uh, because it's something God can't do if he creates such a world, uh, miracles are impossible, or at least impossible, given that he's created this sort of world. I think there are reasons to, to, uh, to think this is not a very uh, a plausible picture of, of God's relationship to the world and, and, and the extent uh, of his power uh, within it. Here's, here's uh, St. Thomas making the case that, that God uh, could perform miracles. So if we consider the order of things depending on any secondary cause, and what do we mean by secondary, secondary cause here is in contrast to God, the primary cause, 
Subsidiary causes, again, are natural causes like fire, like water. If we consider the order of things depending on any secondary cause, God can do something outside such order. For he is not subject to the order of secondary causes. But on the contrary, this order is subject to him, as proceeding from him, not by a natural necessity, but by the choice of his own will. For he could have created another order of things. Wherefore, God can do something outside this order created by him when he chooses. For instance, by producing the effects of secondary causes without them, or by producing certain effects to which secondary causes do not extend. The, the world and the order of natural causes depends on God. God created it. He created it freely. He could have created a different order altogether. It depends. Those natural causes and their, their operating depend on God's creating them, doing what they're doing from moment to moment. Things that are so dependent on God as is, is the world and natural causes are on him could hardly be impervious to his uh, to his influence or intervention, if we want to call it. God, Aquinas would say God is omnipotent. He's able to do anything that is possible. Even things, uh, even creating sorts of things that he doesn't actually or hasn't actually created. And because of this power, he's able to create miracles, for instance, uh, by producing the effects of natural causes, like he could produce the effects of fire or the effects of water without those causes, or he could, he could produce things that no natural causes uh, is capable of producing, that no, natural, no, no thing that he's created can produce, but he could produce it so long as it doesn't involve any sort of contradictory state of affairs. So whereas uh, passage like, like Peacock suggests that the, the that in creating a, 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 a world where natural causes operate in regular and predictable ways, God is creating a world that is impervious to his intervention. Aquinas wants to say, no, that entire creation is totally dependent on God. Uh, and God has the, have the power to create something else. He can bring about things within it uh, that, none of, that is without natural causes bringing about. He can bring about miracles. Okay. Why well, I think God uh, wouldn't, so the, the, the first sort of, or the second sort of consideration, the first consideration for thinking miracles is impossible is that God doesn't exist. We put that aside. The second one was uh, that God couldn't create miracles. A third is that God wouldn't create them. He wouldn't create them. Why well, I think he wouldn't create them? Um, here's Voltaire. He says, it's impossible that a being infinitely wise can have made laws of nature to violate them. He could not derange the machine. He's thinking of the world here as a, as a machine. He could not derange the machine, but with a view of making it work better. But it is evident that God, all wise and omnipotent, originally made this immense machine, the universe, so good and as perfect as he was able. Right. And then uh, for a, a contemporary uh, expression of the same idea. I loathe the idea of a God who interrupts nature, who intervenes at certain stages and manipulates things. 
It would be a very poor sort of God who created a universe that wasn't right and then tinkered with it at later stages. God wouldn't perform miracles. God wouldn't intervene in the world that he's created in a miraculous uh, way. And why wouldn't he? I think the, the authors here are envisioning that the, the only motive God would have, the only reason or purpose God would have for performing a miracle would be to, to fix some defect in the world he had originally created. But, it, but does it make sense to say that there were these defects in the world he originally created? These authors want to say no. So the only sort of conceivable motive for guys acting miraculously uh, doesn't make sense. Is that the only conceivable motive for God's performing a miracle, though? I think is the question uh, to ask ourselves. To, to fix something that uh, he didn't do such a good job with in the first place. Is that the only reason? I don't think so. I think there are lots of uh, other reasons uh, God might perform miracles. Um, and, and here are, are three. He might do so as, as a sign of, of love or special favor. He might do so as a sign of his existence or to strengthen belief in him. If a miracle is something that only God has the power to perform, right? That a miracle has happened provides some reason to think that uh, God exists. Something with divine power, power greater than what we see in, in the natural order exists. So uh, that might be a reason for him to perform a miracle. And he might perform miracles as a sign to authenticate a teaching as divinely revealed. St. Thomas uh, says God enables a man, uh, a person, uh, 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 to perform miracles for two reasons. First and principally, in confirmation of the doctrine that a man teaches, so that when a man does works that God alone can do, we may believe that what he says is from God. How, if God wanted to reveal something to us through, through a, a human being, through a prophet, right? Uh, what evidence would we have for thinking that what this person says is from God, is truly revealed from God? Well, the thought is if this person performs acts of the sort that could only be done by divine power, that would be a, a sign, an authentication by God of the man's teaching. Uh, William Paley, uh, in uh, the late 18th century, uh, a philosophical theologian, uh, writes that uh, in what way, or asks the question, in what way can a divine revelation be made but by miracles, and none which we are able to conceive? He doesn't think you can even make sense of, of divine revelation or our ability to recognize a revelation as such uh, apart from uh, miracles that authenticated the, the teaching of the prophet. Now, whether he's right about that or not, right, it's certainly the case that, that one way God might authenticate the teaching of, of someone who was, he was using as a means of divine revelation would be through miracles. And so St. Thomas will 
uh, said Christ worked miracles in order to confirm his doctrine and in order to show forth his divine power. So I want to turn then to look at some reasons for thinking why thinking that uh, miracles might be impossible, right? And I want to turn now to some, some objections to belief in miracles that are not based on the idea that they're impossible, but really on the, more on uh, epistemological considerations about what we can be justified in, in believing or not believing. And the thought here is that even if miracles are possible, are you ever really in a position to be justified in believing that one has actually happened? And I want to look at two arguments. One I'm going to call the conflict argument, uh, and the other the improbable testimony argument, which focuses in particular on belief in miracles coming from uh, testimony. Okay, so those if we believe on a miracle on the basis of the testimony of others. Both of these arguments are inspired by David Hume, and so I'm going to begin uh, by just looking at a, at a passage from, from Hume, the 18th century uh, Scottish philosopher. So here's, here's Hume setting out what I'll call the conflict argument. A miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. And as, a firm, and and as firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against a miracle from the very nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. You can already see that what he's doing here is, is pitting uh, miracles against laws of nature and then asking us, we've got, saying we've got to choose between these and which do we have better evidence for? The laws of nature or that some miracle has occurred, right? And he thinks it's, it's clear that we have better evidence for the law of nature. We could, we could put, put this argument, set it out as follows, all right, and I'll talk through it. So it starts off with the claim that a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. What does that mean? What does that come to for you? As, as best I can tell, right, it, it comes to, to something like this. If a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature, then that implies that a miracle's having happened would show that a law of nature is false. The miracle is a, is a violation of the laws of nature, then if it, if it has happened, it shows that a law of nature is false. But if a miracle's having happened shows that a law of nature is false, then we can't reasonably believe, can we, both that the miracle occurred and the law of nature. Right? The miracle, belief in it, Right implies the falsehood of the law. Belief in the law implies that, that the miracle didn't occur. Right? If we can't reasonably believe both the miracle and the law of nature, then I, he would suggest uh, between them, if we have to choose between them, we should believe whichever has the stronger evidence and disbelieve whichever has the weaker evidence. So, 
what, where we where we left in this line of reasoning. Like if you, between these two things that are pitted against each other, belief in the miracle and belief in the law, we should believe whichever has the stronger evidence, disbelieve whichever has the weaker evidence. But he was going to say the evidence for the law of nature is always stronger than the evidence for the miracle. And so we should always believe in the law of nature and disbelieve in the miracle. Why well, I think the evidence for the law of nature is always stronger. Where would we, you might say, we've got mountains of evidence for the law of nature, right? We got how much? We got tons of evidence, right? That, that fire heats water, right? That, it, that fire that fire burns and heats and, and so forth. We've got mountains of evidence for that, right? How much evidence do we have that a miracle occurred, right? It can't, be, can't possibly be as much as we have for the law of nature. So if they're pitted against each other, right, we have to choose one of the one, we're always uh, reasonable in believing uh, in the law of nature and rejecting uh, the occurrence of the miracle. Okay. Um, I think the problem with this argument is, is really at the very beginning, uh, the, the first premise. At least if, if, if the second premise is, is an implication of, of the claim in the first premise. So I'm going to focus on the first premise and, and grant the second one, right? If a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature, right? I think there's, you're already, there's already a problem here. Uh, and I think we can see uh, the problem by thinking a little bit about uh, laws of, of nature. So a given law of nature is going to tell us what effects follow from a natural cause in a given set of, of conditions. Okay? So a law of nature might say something like, uh, when you apply flames to wood, when the wood is dry, the flames will ignite the wood. It's telling you what will happen in a given set of conditions. The law is is specified by those conditions, right? If you put fire in these conditions next to wood where the wood is dry, it will ignite the wood, right? That's what the, that's what the law says. What happens if we change the conditions? What, for example, if the wood is wet? Is it a violation of the law that we were talking about before if you put flames to, to wet wood and it doesn't ignite? That's not a violation of that law at all because the conditions see the woods being dry uh, don't hold. And so the law doesn't, is not applicable in those conditions. Do you see that? The law tells us, the law of nature tells us what happens in condition C, right? It doesn't tell us what happens in some other set of conditions. The law in our example, tells us that fire will ignite dry wood, right? It doesn't tell us anything about what fire will do if the wood isn't dry. And so if it doesn't, in fact, ignite wet wood, it's no violation of the law. Well, I think we can say something similarly about, uh, about the case where God is acting miraculously. If we add that God is 
is intervening, if we add that God is acting to perform a miracle, it's no violation of a law of nature. Since the law tells us what happens in conditions that don't include God's intervention. Presumably the, the law is holding it in conditions where God is not acting in this miraculous fashion. And so in conditions where he is acting in a miraculous fashion, it's not a violation of the law. Or as a, as a contemporary philosopher puts it, miracles are occurrences having causes about which laws of nature are simply silent. The laws are true, but simply don't speak to the events caused by divine interventions. Believing in a miracle does not require us to believe that any law of nature is violated or false. No violation, no conflict. We can continue to believe in laws of nature on the basis of the evidence we have for them, while also believing that miracles occur on the basis of the evidence we have for them, which is why you can have you know, priests who are scientists, they presumably believe in laws of nature and also in miracles. Miracles aren't violations of the law of nature. There's no conflict here, and so one doesn't have to choose between them. All right, let's look at, at one last argument here. Uh, <coughs> an argument to the effect that it can never be reasonable for us to believe in miracles on the basis of testimony. Somebody else is telling us so. Uh, here's, here's Hume. Uh, he says, no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. No testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony is of such a kind that the falsehood of that testimony would be the greater miracle, would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. It goes on, when anyone tells me that he saw a dead man restored to life, I immediately consider with myself whether it be more probable that this person should either deceive or be deceived, or that the fact which he relates, the dead man's being restored to life, should have really happened. If the falsehood of his testimony would be more miraculous than the event which he relates, then and not till then can he pretend to command my belief or opinion. Unpack it, we could, we could say a person should believe in a miracle on the basis of testimony only if it is more probable that the miracle occurred than that the testimony is false. It's a similar kind of thing to the conflict argument, isn't it? The conflict argument is pitting what sort of the evidence we have or the reasons we have for believing in the miracle versus the reasons we have for believing in laws of nature. And this is doing the same thing, except not now in terms of the laws of nature, but in terms of testimony. A 
A person should believe in a miracle on the basis of testimony only if it is more probable that the miracle occurred that the testimony is false, but it's never more probable that the miracle occurred. In other words, he thinks it's always more likely that the testimony is mistaken. And so we should never believe miracles on the basis of testimony. That's the, that's the same argument again. We might ask the question, what is Hume's support for the second premise of the argument? And it seems to be, as far as I can tell, and I, I, it's, it's a little hard to make out exactly how the argument is supposed to go, but as far as I can tell, the thought is that miracles are, are really unusual occurrences outside the norm. And so that the odds that a miracle will take place are so low that it's always a better bet that the person testifying to the miracle is mistaken. Now, we already saw in the, in the earlier part of the talk, right, that, that it seems almost the nature of the case that if there are miracles that we are going to be able to recognize, they have to be pretty rare, right? Um, because we have to recognize them as things that happen but they aren't explicable in terms of natural causes. And that's going to mean that most of the time what happens is explicable in terms of natural causes. So uh, it's, it's not, shouldn't be surprised us that miracles are, are rare, but what Hume seems to be saying is that you know, they're, so, they're so rare, they're so outside the norm, that the odds that they actually, in any given instance, that it actually took place, um, it's, it's always going to be a better bet just to think that the testimony is false. I don't know about that, though. Did I, I told some of you where I'm from. Uh, this isn't. If you were from where I'm from, this would be, you know, you'd be gasping. Well, I, I'm from Atlanta. I don't know if you remember Super Bowl 51. You're from Atlanta, too. You're crying. Yeah, you, literally this man has tears in his eyes. <laughs> you can hardly believe this. Super Bowl 51, okay? Uh, Falcons lead the Patriots 28 to 3 uh, midway through the third quarter. That's a comfortable lead. I mean, that's, even if you're a pessimist, right? You're, if, you're a, if you're a Falcons fan, you're kind of kicking back and relaxing and, and enjoying the rest of the ride. Um, ESPN calculated the Falcons uh, win probability to be 99.8% with 6.04 left to go in the third quarter. Uh, Real-time betting in Las Vegas was a little bit more cautious, but still calculated it at 96%. Sorry. Uh, final score, uh, Patriots 34-28. No one knows how, I, mean, I don't know how it happened. You go back and look at it, you can be, you know. Um, but the, the point is, I mean, atypical things, unusual things, things that are, that are highly improbable, uh, actually, they do happen, right? Um, I'm not saying this was miraculous or not. That's a discussion for another day. But, uh, um, but, but it's certainly unusual, highly improbable, but improbable things do happen all the time. Um, if somebody was reporting, you know, if, you're, if you weren't a, a sports fan, but maybe knew a little bit enough to, to have 
you know, checked in in the third quarter and realized this wasn't a very good game, and you turn off the TV and go to bed, and somebody tells you the next day, I mean, you won't believe this, but the Patriots won that game. You know, would you, would you not believe their testimony on the basis of the improbability of that comeback? And I'm thinking, you, you probably would believe their testimony, right? Unless you, you know, unless like, you know, you're, you're, you're a Falcons fan, your roommate likes to troll you or something like this, and you thought, because you were a Falcons fan, you'd still be watching, you wouldn't watch it and celebrate it, right? Well, you weren't. Anyway, the point is, right, improbable things happen, right? Uh, and and when, you, when someone tells you of the improbable thing that happened, unless you have some reason, particular reason to disbelieve them, like they just are a jokester or a trickster or something like that, then you would believe it, even though it's highly improbable. Yeah? Um, this point is made, in a, in I think, a, a good book on miracles by a, a contemporary philosopher, Robert Garmer. He says, unless there exists a conflict between two relevant bodies of evidence, it only takes a modest amount of evidence to justify belief that an event has occurred, even if the event is rare or unusual, we might say improbable. We routinely accept claims with low preeminence probabilities on the basis of limited testimonial evidence. If my son, who does not buy lottery tickets, phones to tell me that he found a lottery ticket lying in the street and that when he took it to the store, he was informed that it was the winning number for a jackpot to which he is now entitled, it would seem irrational to inform him that I cannot accept his report since his extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. Now, I mean, maybe if you say, I cannot accept your, his report because it's April Fool's Day, ha ha, you, you know, you got me, okay, fine. Uh, or because, you know, he has a track record of, of, you know, trying to get you to believe things that haven't happened. But just in, apart from stuff like that, the, the fact that the event that he's reporting was improbable uh, is no reason to demand a super extraordinary evidence for its having occurred or, or to reject his testimony. You see that? Um, I think he's right about that. So, I'm, I would probably go after two. I mean, it depends a little bit on how you parse the, these premises, and I don't want to spend time parsing it because I think you get the point without our doing that. But I would just conclude with a, a few uh, points regarding, you know, a really important miracle, foundational miracle uh, of, of the Christian faith, the resurrection of, of Jesus. Um, maybe what Hume had in mind when he was talking about a man, you know, uh, being restored to life, I don't know. Um, but if we think about the, the, the testimony to, to Jesus' resurrection, um, the, the disciples report having seen Jesus in the flesh after his death. They report that Jesus' tomb was found empty. Uh, they were persecuted for this testimony, yet stood by it at grace cost, great cost to themselves. You know, Leaving Judas aside, all, all the apostles, uh, would, but, but John, were martyred, tradition tells us. 
Um, they stood by this, despite uh, great cost to themselves. Uh, Paul, who had been a persecutor of the Christians, reports having seen the risen Jesus and totally changes uh, course on the basis of that. How likely is it that the testimony is false? Um, if the testimony was false, and, and Hume uh, sort of alludes to this sort of thing, then the testifiers were either uh, deceived themselves or they were deceiving us, right? Um, how often do people remain deceived? And there were a lot in such great numbers, right? And especially in a situation where the, the delusion, if it were a delusion, would have been uh, fairly easily discovered, for example, by finding Christ's body in the tomb, but it wasn't there. How often do people lie and deceive when it brings them no benefit, but only suffering and death? Oh, this is, of course, a traditional apologetic for belief in the, the resurrection, the reasonability of believing in it. Right? It's not the kind of testimony, and the conditions of the testimony, it's, it's not the kind of testimony uh, that we would normally uh, question uh, if there's anything that would make a, us question it, it's just how improbable you know, a, a resurrection is, how unusual that is. But as we've seen, right, um, uh, testimony to improbable events uh, it can, can be reasonable to accept. Improbable events actually do happen. We might also um, wonder about our ability to, to gauge how probable or improbable a miraculous event is, okay? To know how probable an event is might also require knowing more details about the situation. So if the situation is simply described as a dead man's rising from the dead, then agree, people will certainly agree that dead men typically don't rise. But, you know, what if we had other aspects to the picture, right? <coughs> What if this particular dead man is the Son of God, the Messiah? Um, what are God's purposes in this situation at hand? Once we know more details about the situation, we might not be so confident that in this particular situation, the reported event is unlikely. Now, we don't always, it's not always easy for us to know uh, God's purposes in a particular situation, but the point just is, if you factor those sorts of things in, uh, the judgment about how improbable the event is, such as Christ's resurrection, uh, changes, doesn't it? Um, from, from what it would be if, you, if, the, if the way it was described is simply a dead man's rising. Uh, uh. Okay, so in summary, um, in my, my judgment, the, the reasons that some have given for thinking that miracles are impossible are very weak, at least very weak if we're assuming the existence of, of God as, as we traditionally think of God. But those are, are, are weak. I think the arguments uh, that it could never be reasonable to believe that a miracle has occurred, even if, if they are possible, that maybe it's possible but we can't be reasonable in believing it or justified in believing it, I think those arguments are more interesting, but ultimately uh, not persuasive either. Uh, miracles, I think, do not violate laws of nature. 
And so we, we don't need to pit our evidence for the one against our evidence for the other. We're not forced to choose between belief in the laws of nature and belief that a miracle has occurred. There's no conflict. And just because a thing is atypical in a given situation is no reason not to accept good testimony that it has occurred, especially if we don't have uh, positive evidence that it hasn't occurred. And again, when it comes to miracles, where God is the, the agent here, we often don't know about enough about the situation, including God's intentions and purposes, to judge how likely it is uh, that he would so act. Okay? That's good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.